I'd like to uh, get started. Uh, we do have a uh, very full hour, and so I'd like to begin with prayer, and then uh, I'd like to uh, begin. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, uh, Lord, for bringing us here this morning uh, that we might gather to worship you. Thank you, Lord, for protecting us uh, from uh, the storm as we got only really a small bit compared to many. And so I uh, pray that you would uh, continue to give safe travels to those on their way. And as we've uh, gathered this morning, um, we've gathered to worship you. We've gathered to be fed by the word of God. And uh, Lord, I uh, pray that you would uh, please help me to accurately communicate uh, the issues at hand um, uh, in our subjects today. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would use these things to uh, equip my brethren, Lord, uh, in understanding what is at hand, what is at stake, understanding principles from the word of God, that you might give them wisdom uh, to live in a manner that honors you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, the lessons in our current uh, Sunday School series are all related to the subject of morality and ethics, which has as its primary concern trying to understand the issue of what is right and what is wrong in the area of decision making. Well, people make decisions for many different reasons some of which are practical, social, political, financial, emotional, personal preferences, perception of what others will think of them, or consideration of what are the perceived benefits or consequences resulting from the decision. But for the Christian, the basis of making decisions that must be of greatest concern, such that it renders all other reasons irrelevant, is this. What does God think about it? Or in other words, what do the scriptures say about it? Well, some of, uh, sometimes there are clear commands. Uh, at other times, there are principles which may require the hard work of study to determine exactly how to properly apply them in a particular situation. In working through the decision-making process, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand if I am obligated before God to do or to not do something. Or if I'm permitted to do or to refrain from doing something, that, fall, that may fall into an area of Christian liberty or freedom. Well, where a given decision violates a clear command of God in the scripture, I am obligated to not go in that direction. And even when a clear command is not given, scripture often has many principles that reveal God's heart in the matter at hand. Well, what this means for me is this. All the practical and personal reasons I may have for uh, going in a different direction are made irrelevant when God has spoken otherwise on the issue. This is one aspect of what it looks like to practically live for Christ in my day-to-day -day life. While sinners who have been saved and transformed by the gospel of grace are called to flesh out in their lives a distinctly Christian ethic, True Christianity is not defined on the basis of external moralism, religious traditionalism, or partisan politics, but on the basis of a personal love for Jesus Christ and a desire to follow him no matter what the cost. 
And truly, a truly Christian ethic is only truly Christian when it eagerly affirms and applies the moral instructions found in the Bible. Well, there is a passage of scripture, and you can turn to it in Ephesians 5, that describes what I'm talking about. The Apostle Paul is exhorting the believers to live in a manner consistent with their calling in Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 15 to 17, it says this, Therefore, be careful how you walk, that is, how you live your life, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, when we're faced with the issues of life, the first thing we should think of is this. I want to understand what God has to say about this particular issue. And if you look back up to verse 10, um, Paul uh, just said the same thing, but a little bit differently. Actually, in verse 8, he says, walk as children of light. And then in verse 10, he says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And so that should be our goal, our aim. Even as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Well, some of the topics that we have covered under morality and ethics so far involve issues that our government has said are permissible, uh, such as divorce for any reason or abortion. Uh, these are biblically immoral issues that are even in, uh, excuse me, uh, these are also, and others that we'll be talking about, are biblically immoral issues that are even encouraged by the government. And the most extreme in governments like China uh, birth control by abortion may even be commanded in light of their one-child limit law. But no matter what the stance is by our government, whether something is permissible, whether it's encouraged, or whether it's commanded, what needs to inform and govern our decisions as Christians in these and similar, other similar matters is the light of the Word of God. And so with that as an introduction, we come to our topic today, uh, birth control and in vitro fertilization and surrogacy. Uh, they cover two areas made possible with advances, if you will, in medical technology, uh, really only becoming options in some cases in the last several decades. And for uh, before jumping on the bandwagon of new medical technology, one must first examine these issues under the grid of scripture. So, uh, for uh, as we've been discussing, just as uh, something is made legal uh, through government law, or in this case it's made possible through medical technology, does not necessarily mean that it is right in God's sight. Well, birth control and in vitro fertilization and surrogacy try to solve uh, opposite concerns that couples have regarding bringing children into this world. On the one side, uh, there is birth control. Uh, couples who utilize some method of birth control do so for the purpose of uh, trying to prevent pregnancy from, from occurring, while at the same time enjoying the pleasures of God's gift of sexual intimacy. It's often motivated by a desire for various reasons to limit the size of the family. On the flip side, trying to address potential solutions for the opposite problem are in vitro fertilization and surrogacy. Uh, both involve using advances in medical technology in trying to have children uh, by couples that for some reason appear to be infertile. 
motivated, it's often motivated by a desire to have children, which has not occurred through natural means, but may be made possible through the assistance of medical reproductive technology, at least in part, some done in a laboratory. Well, the purpose of our time uh, together in this lesson is to help you to understand some of the applicable principles addressing these issues, um, as well as uh, what some of the methods entail, so that should you consider any of these options, uh, you are better equipped to make wise and biblically informed decisions so as to not ignorantly go down the wrong path displeasing to the Lord. And Lord willing, our time together will challenge and encourage you to pursue these matters in a way which honors Christ. Well, we're going to first look at the issue of uh, birth control, and we're going to actually be spending most of our time on this subject this morning. Uh, many of you have heard of a Dr. Albert Muller. Uh, he serves as president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, he writes uh, regular blogs on albertmuller.com and, uh, and current event, uh, about current events from a biblical worldview. Uh, he wrote an article back in 2004 entitled, Can Christians Use Birth Control? And since our chapter this week in our book um, references uh, a quote from this article, uh, I would like to read some additional extended quotes also and paraphrase some other points that he made and then comment on them. And by the way, uh, I should, uh, it should go without saying, but um, I'm going to say it anyway. Biblical procreation, the act of uh, sexual intercourse, should only be done within the confines of marriage. Uh, Hebrews 13.4 says uh, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Therefore, when discussing birth control, it will be assumed that we're only talking about the context of married couples since sexual intercourse or fornication outside of marriage is clearly condemned as a sin. And yet it is important to understand that um, as a negative consequence of birth control, and by the way, I haven't started reading uh, Al Mohler's article yet. Uh, as a negative consequence of easy birth control, the sexual, uh, revolution, the sexual revolution took off in our nation. Um, and so as Al Mohler uh, begins his article by saying, the effective separation of sex from procreation may be one of the most important defining marks of our age. Okay, so I'm going to stop there for a minute. I'll come back to his article. In other words, uh, when it becomes so easy to take away the normal possibility of children resulting from the act of sex, it has a very radical effect on our society. Uh, before I continue reading uh, Al Mohler's article, I just want to bring to your attention a New York Post article that was released last Sunday, and you'll see clearly an example of what Dr. Mohler, I believe, is talking about. The article was entitled, New York schools giving out uh, tens of thousands of doses of, of the morning after pill. Um, B, which is a brand name for the pill, has become plan A in the Bloomberg administration's secret war on teen pregnancy. It goes on to say, handouts of the morning after pill to sexually active students have skyrocketed under an unpublicized project in which health centers and public schools offer girls a full, a full menu of free birth control drugs and devices. About 40 separate school-based health centers doled out 
12,721 doses of Plan B in the year 2011-2012 school year. And that was up from 11,000, about 11,000 the year before, and about 5,000 the year before that. Well, I think um, this is an example of the negative consequences that uh, easy birth control uh, is having on our current generation. Uh, it has opened wide the doors for sex by the unmarried while freeing them from the unfavorable possibility of resulting children, in their view. Of course, uh, it is the heart that is wicked, but when restrictions or consequences are removed that God has built into the fabric of humanity, then uh, we see as this example, wickedness tends to run rampant and unrestrained. Uh, but, uh, full. Not to conclude that just because the wicked have abused birth control, that it does not follow that birth control in and of itself is always wrong. And so we'll see that in a few moments. Let's get back to uh, Dr. Muller's article. He says, uh, most evangelical Christians greeted the advent of modern birth control technologies with applause and relief. Lacking any substantial theology of marriage, sex, or the family, evangelicals welcomed the development of the pill much as the world celebrated the discovery of penicillin, simply as one more milestone in the inevitable march of human progress and the conquest of nature. Well, for many evangelical Christians, birth control has been thought to be an issue of concern really only for Catholics who are under the Pope's edict outlawing artificial birth control. Instead, evangelical couples became devoted users of birth control techniques, ranging from the pill to barrier methods, to, inter to interuterine devices, or IUDs. Well, that is all changing, and a new generation of evangelical couples is asking new questions. A growing number of evangelicals are rethinking the issue of birth control. Hard uh, questions posed by reproductive technologies. Several developments contributed to this reconsideration, but the most important of these is the abortion revolution. The early evangelical response to legalized abortion was woefully inadequate. Some of the largest evangelical denominations at first accepted at least some version of abortion on demand. The evangelical conscience, he says, was awakened in the late 1970s when the murderous reality of abortion could not be denied affirming that human life must be recognized and protected from the moment of conception, even increasingly recognized intrauterine devices, or IUDs, as abortifacients, that is, something that may cause an abortion, and rejected any birth control with an abortifacient design or result. This conviction is now casting a cloud even over the pill as well. And then he says, Thus, an ironic turn, ironic turn, um, in an ironic turn, American evangelicals are rethinking birth control, even as a majority of the nation's Roman Catholics indicated a rejection of their church's teaching. And so the, the question he asks is, how should Christians think about the birth control question? And then he goes on to give six answers. I'm going I'm to speak about five of them this morning. And uh, in between each one, I'll make some comments on it. Well, the first one, he says, is we must start with a rejection of the contraceptive mentality that sees pregnancy and children as impositions to be avoided. 
rather than uh, gifts to be uh, received, loved, and nurtured. This contraceptive mentality is an insidious uh, attack on God's glory in creation and the creator's gift of procreation to the married couple. Well, that's his first point. And so, as we will see, um, uh, although there may be some valid and wise reasons to delay or not to, uh, or to have children, uh, selfishness is not one of them. Uh, we are increasingly seeing attitudes today of, I like my lifestyle, I like my weekends free, kids just get in the way. But luxury and mere conveniences are not valid reasons uh, for preventing conceptions. Um, and as Christians, we need to examine and maybe regularly re-examine our motives. Uh, in fact, uh, when considering birth control as a biblical moral issue, the heart of the issue actually is motives. Uh, the Bible is silent on the issue, but we know historically that God's people considered having children to be a blessing, and while at the same time practice some forms of birth control without God's condemnation. Uh, God has clearly established a number of different sexual prohibitions in Scripture, yet controlling conception is never mentioned. A couple needs to consider their motives for wanting a large or a small family and see how they correlate to known biblical principles. Uh, they must be sure to investigate their motives on their own and not rely on a Bible teacher or other spiritual authority to tell them what to do. Let's return to Dr. Muller's article on how Christians ought to think regarding birth control. And the second point he makes is we must affirm that God gave us the gift of sex for several specific purposes. And one of those purposes is procreation. Uh, marriage represents a perfect network of divine gifts, including sexual pleasure, emotional bonding, mutual support, procreation, and parenthood. We are not to sever those blessings of marriage and choose only those we may desire for ourselves. Uh, every marriage must be open to the gift of children. Uh, even when the ability to conceive and bear children may be absent, the will to receive children must be present. To demand sexual pleasure without openness to children is to violate a sacred trust. And that's the second point that he makes. And so, uh, there is no question that uh, bearing children pleases God. Uh, several passages make that evident. Uh, in Deuteronomy 28, uh, where Moses spells out to Israel the blessings for their obedience and the curses for their disobedience, it includes the fruit of the womb or the bearing of children right near the beginning of the list. And although it is beyond the scope of this lesson, uh, it can be noted that there are different dynamics taking place between the particulars of God's blessings and commands to the nation of Israel and compared with the blessing and commands that God has for his church. Yet, at least as far as Israel was concerned, it is clearly stated over and over again as one of God's promised blessings for Israel that he would greatly multiply them in their land. As far as the New Testament church is concerned, uh, Paul's exhortation to young widows in 1 Timothy 5.14 says this, and it seems to reflect more of a biblical norm for married couples. It says, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, 
keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. By grouping together the two phrases, get married and bear children, it gives the strong sense that those who are married uh, or who would be married are, um, ha- seems to give the strong sense that having children seems to be the general norm and less providentially hindered. And so, just to clarify, for married couples, bearing children seems to be the general norm, but there is nothing in the New Testament indicating that it is mandatory for all couples. Well, back to uh, Dr. Muller's article on how a Christian ought to think about birth control. We'll be skipping the third point that he makes, and I'll be going on to the fourth point. Uh, says, fourth, uh, Christian couples are not ordered by Scripture to maximize the largest number of children that could possibly be conceived. And given our, he says, given our general state of health in advanced societies, a couple who marries in the early 20s and has a healthy and regular sex life could well produce over 15 offspring before, their wife, uh, before uh, the wife passes her early 40s. Such families should be rightly honored, but this level of reproduction is certainly not mandated by the Bible. And with that point, uh, Dr. Muller brings an important balance to the discussion because there are groups within Christendom that teach that all birth control is almost always wrong. And so Christians sitting under this teaching may result in having very large families. Um, There is a classic passage in the scripture that is often used by those to support their view that birth control is wrong. It's found in Psalm 127, so you can turn there. Psalm 127 and I'll read the first, or I'll read verses three through five. It goes like this. Uh, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Well, the argument for never any birth control goes something like this. The Lord uses children to bless us, verse 5. Using birth control would interfere with his blessing. So, we should not try to avoid having a blessing from God or reject his gift, verse 3. Well, it is agreed that this passage certainly does reveal the heart of God in this matter. Uh, It is true that children are to be viewed as a gift of God, rather than indifferent or something to be avoided. Uh, God's timeless purpose for many children is blessing. Although this passage speaks of children as a blessing from the Lord, uh, it is important to understand that it is not to be viewed as something that comes to fruition automatically. Scripture also says, to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Uh, That's in Luke 12.48. A big family means increased responsibility, and even the most faithful parents do not have a promised guarantee in the scripture that their children will all turn out godly. There are several passages, for instance, in Proverbs that either due to consequences for not being a faithful parent or simply the sovereignty of God, it it makes it clear that older children can become either a blessing or a curse, in a sense. And so Proverbs speaks of sons Uh, for instance, who are wise or foolish. And it says uh, of the foolish son that he is irresponsible for not helping with work on the farm 
is a grief to his mother, acts shamefully, despises his mother, and a father of foolish son has no joy. Furthermore, Proverbs says the foolish son, foolish son brings sorrow, grief, bitterness, destruction, humiliation, shame, and despises his mother when she is old and, need of, and in need of his care. And then there's a passage in Proverbs 30, verse 11, that says this, there is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. Far from being a blessing, the result of these children look more like a curse. But Proverbs also sings the praises of children, consistent with our Psalm 127. Uh, regarding a wise son, it says that he makes his father glad, he blesses his mother, the wise son is said to be discerning, is responsible to help the family with much needed work on the farm, will be the cause for great rejoicing in the innermost being of the parent, will provide comfort for you when you are in need, and will be a delight to your soul. So although it is true that Psalm 127 teaches that children are a blessing from the Lord, it also is clear that when considering the larger context of Scripture, that blessing of children is not automatic, and uh, is not automatic with the giving of children. In fact, what may have been intended to be a blessing can become, in one sense, a curse. It is evident from Scripture that what is often needed to work out the results of that blessing is parental responsibility, as well as ability to obey God's commands to parents to train their children, for this is God's normative design for raising up godly offspring. And although there is no guarantee in parenting, Scripture's sowing and reaping principle leans toward the norm that parents who are faithful to the hard work of spiritual training are often blessed to have godly offspring because the Spirit of God effectually uses the hard work of biblical training and the Word of God accompanied with integrity in the home. Well, one commentator uh, wrote about uh, something on one, uh, Psalm 127. And he said it teaches that a good marksman or a warrior... Uh, found in verse 4. A good marksman has his quiver filled only with as many arrows as he can deliver to the mark. The application of parenthood is uh, for a couple uh, is for a couple not to have any more children than they can raise and provide in a godly way. This is a serious matter. Preventing conception has no eternal consequences whereas raising ungodly, undisciplined individuals can lead to their eventual damnation. He says, righteousness in a few children is, far, is a far greater commodity than, uh, than a far more greater commodity and blessing than unrighteousness in many. One couple, he says, uh, may be able to take 10 arrows and direct every one of them back to the mark of God. Other couples are less confident and feel that they can bring only one or two to God. Biblical ethics give the command, excuse me, give the couple the freedom to use some form of birth control, and God expects them to do what they do, which me, God expects them to do what they know to be right and not let anyone else's conscience unduly influence them, end quote. Well, returning again to Dr. Mueller's article on how a Christian ought to think about birth control, he gives a fifth point, um, and he says, with all, with all this in view, uh, Christian couples may at times choose to use contraceptives in order to plan their families 
and enjoy the pleasures of the marital bed. The couple must consider all these issues with care and must be truly open to the gift of children. The moral justification for using contraceptives must be clear in the couple's mind and fully consistent with the couple's Christian commitments." End quote. Well, nothing in scripture prohibits married couples from practicing birth control, either for a limited time to delay childbearing or permanently once they believe their family is complete. And at the same time, we must keep in mind that it is God's normative design that married couples have children. However, no amount of children is ever given in scripture. It should only be with careful examination of your motives, biblical principles, and your circumstances, understanding of your particular circumstances, um, such as the health of the parents, etc., um, accompanied with prayer and discussion with each other that you should consider postponing or preventing pregnancy. As with every ethical decision that believers make, reasons for using birth control should reflect a biblical worldview and should not simply be dictated by the default practices of the culture. Well, uh, though the use of birth control in principle is not forbidden in scripture, not all methods of birth control are acceptable. And 1 Corinthians lists one such forbidden method of birth control for married couples. Does anybody know what that is? Yes, abstinence. Okay, prolonged abstinence between the husband and wife is forbidden. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 7, if you turn there, 1 Corinthians 7, or if you listen, I'll read verses 2 through 5. It says, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty, that is sexually, to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Then he says, verse 5, stop depriving one another, that is sexually, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, that brings us to uh, Dr. Muller's final point uh, on how Christians ought to think about birth control. And he says, point six, Christian couples must ensure that the methods chosen are really contraceptive in effect and not abortifacient. In other words, they do not have any aspect about them that causes or potentially could cause an abortion. Not all birth control is contraception. For some technologies and methods do not prevent the sperm from fertilizing the egg, but instead their design is to prevent the fertilized egg from successfully implanting itself in the lining of the womb. And that's a key distinction. Some uh, birth control methods also actually employ both of these. Such methods involve nothing less, he says, than an early abortion. He says this is true of all IUDs some hormonal and some hormonal technologies. A raging debate, he says, now surrounds the question of whether at least some forms of the pill may also work through abortifacient effect, rather than merely preventing ovulation. Christian couples 
must exercise due care in choosing a form of birth control that is unquestionably only contraceptive rather than containing any abortifacient elements, end quote. Well, so when choosing um, a birth control method, the issue comes down to this. It must be purely contraceptive with no possibility of being abortifacient. And that being the case, when examining, and if you are a couple that is interested in pursuing birth control, then of course this needs to be what questions that you're going to need to ask. When examining whether a birth control method is abortifacient, uh, we have to correctly understand at least two things. And I'm going to cover these two things. The first one is exactly when does life begin? You need to know exactly when life begins. And number two, exactly how does the method of birth control that you're considering work? You need to understand how it works. So let's look at the first one. Exactly when does life begin? Well, um, you will probably say, if I were to ask you, but we're low on time here, so at, that you'll, you'll probably say life begins at conception. But in fact, you, it does begin at conception, but in fact, you actually need to be precise to define what conception means. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. Okay, so what does conception mean? What does it mean at conception? It means at the point where the sperm fertilizes the egg. Okay, now you may or may not be aware, but um, fertilization of uh, the egg most commonly occurs in one of the fallopian tubes, which may be, uh, and it may be up to several days before the fertilized egg makes its way from the fallopian tube to the uterus, where it will then implant in the uterus lining wall and continue to grow. This view holds that the three terms, okay, when, when we talk about conception beginning at fertilization, uh, the three terms, pregnancy, fertilization, and conception would all mean the same thing in a sense. In other words, life begins at conception, which happens at the time of fertilization, and when that happens, there's a pregnancy that begins. Okay, it is important to clearly understand this definition uh, when assessing uh, whether a birth control method is abortive or not. Uh, since life begins at conception, meaning fertilization, uh, then we can conclude from scripture that the intentional destruction of that life is tantamount to what? Okay, so it's tantamount to murder. What this means for birth control choices is that any form of birth control that destroys the fetus or fertilized ovum or egg, rather than preventing conception, um, is therefore wrong. Okay, so going back to the question, uh, exactly when does life begin? Um, it is, uh, I said that it is very important, uh, particularly in this day and age, for you to understand the precise answer to this question on when life begins. And it's important to be aware because of this reason. There is really an official in recent years, um, maybe in the 90s, um, there's um, uh, an official really redefinition of the word conception, which traditionally meant at fertilization. Okay, and uh, it's used in a growing number of medical circles. 
the, and it's called, um, uh, basically, uh, what I'm going to describe here is called the implantation view. Okay, and I'm going to read, uh, to describe that to you, I'm going to read uh, a few paragraphs from an article I found on the Answers in Genesis website. It's a very good article that summarizes what I'm talking about. It says this, An increasingly heard viewpoint today is related to the implantation of fertilized egg into the uterine lining. This implantation process begins on day six, following and can continue until around day nine. Some people now suggest that it is not until this time, that is around day six to day nine, that the fertilized egg can officially be called a human life. However, achieving implantation does not make the individual more human, rather implantation makes the individual more likely to survive. Well, interestingly enough, he says, uh, the popularity of this view has led to some changes in how some define conception. Until recently, conception was synonymous with fertilization. In fact, in the 26th edition, published in 1995, of Stedman's Medical Dictionary, conception was defined as the act of conceiving or becoming pregnant fertilization of the ovum by a sperm to form a viable zygote. Conception was defined medically then at the time of fertilization. However, some interesting, he says, some interesting, uh, something interesting happened in the next five years. In the 27th edition of Stedman's Medical Dictionary, conception is defined as follows, act, the act of conceiving. And then it says, the implantation of the fertilized egg. Excuse me. The implantation of the fertilized egg uh, in the endometrium or the lining of the uterus. Now here, um, excuse me, note here that the implantation is now the defining point of conception. The scientific community, he says, arbitrarily and without any scientific justification, redefined the starting point of life. Well, according to the redefined view, a fertilized egg, less than nine days old or so, having not yet completed implantation, uh, would not be considered alive. If it is not considered alive, it is certainly not to be human. Um, this change was completely arbitrary, for there was no basic change in the understanding of the developmental process that would make this redefinition any necessary. And then he says, the, lastly, the new definition would, however, have great implications in the political, ethical, and moral arenas. Personal and government dis governmental decisions or decision-making on such issues as embryonic stem cell research, cloning, and the so-called morning-after pill directly depends on the validity of this new definition. For instance, if a pre-implantation of fertilized eggs were not really alive, then this is what it means, then they could simply be guiltlessly harvested or destroyed prior to the six to nine day mark because conception had not occurred." End quote. Well, how does the changing of the definition of conception impact uh, a Christian's search for an acceptable birth control method.
if your method of birth control allows the egg to be fertilized but prevents implantation of the fertilized egg in the uterus, then what? That the method of birth control is in fact abortifacient in God's sight, even though it is declared not to be abortifacient <coughs> by the government, the pharmaceutical companies, and a growing number of doctors and nurses. This means that legally the drug companies, doctors, and government can advertise a drug or device as contraceptive, that is preventing conception defined as implant, implantation, when it is in fact fashioned since it endangers the fertilized egg or human life. This is why in addition to understanding when life really begins, it is equally important to understand how the method of birth control actually works so that you can discern for yourself whether it is abortifacient and not to be deceived by the published misleading language, and there's a lot out there. So just to give you an example of how an organization, for instance, as Planned Parenthood, funded largely by your tax dollars, how that communicates this kind of information. I saw the following on the website this past week. It says, um, there has been considerable public confusion about the difference between emergency contraception and medical abortion because of misinformation uh, disseminated by anti-choice or pro-life groups. Emergency contraception, it says, uh, Planned Parenthood says, helps prevent pregnancy. Medication, uh, medication uh, and that's, that's like the morning after pill. Um, medication abortion terminates pregnancy. And it says, according to the general medical definitions of pregnancy, and then it, or conception, um, that have been, and notice what they say, that have been endorsed by many organizations, including the American College of um, Obstetricians and, the, and Gynecologists, and the United States Department of Health and Human Services, they go on to say that pregnancy begins when a pre-embryo, that is a fertilized egg, completes implantation, that's the key word, into the lining of the uterus. So they have, uh, when they talk about uh, something preventing conception or pregnancy, they're not talking about fertilization, they're talking about uh, it, 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 um, it's not a baby in, in their eyes until it completes implantation. Again, that's six to nine days after fertilization. Well, earlier I said that there were at least two important things that you, that you needed to, to understand when examining a method, uh, whether a method, a birth control method is abortifacient. And the first was exactly when does life begin? And I think we covered that. We said that um, that was at conception as defined at the point of fertilization. Well, we come to the second question, uh, and that is exactly how does the method of birth control work? So I'm going to just uh, briefly look at two, um, uh, a few things for you to think, out, think about concerning uh, uh, two methods, the IUD and the pill. The IUD, or interuterine, interuterine device, is a small device that is inserted in the uterus. There are several different kinds. And earlier, you heard me read Dr. Muller's words stating that all forms of IUD are, are border-fashioned. But just to clarify, it is designed actually to be preventative, contraceptive, 
but also some, contains some abortifacient aspects to it, although they are largely downplayed or ignored. Well, I found uh, a link to, um, to the FDA, or the government website for the Food and Drug Administration, uh, the website which contained the following warnings that they uh, publish and that they ask for um, as recommendations uh, for doctors and nurses when prescribing an IUD uh, to women. And this is what they're, they're recommended to say. Okay, whether they say these things or not is up to the doctor or nurse, but this is what they're recommended to say by the FDA. It says this, if an intrauterine pregnancy occurs with the IUD in place, uh, it should be removed because of the risk of spontaneous abortion. But then it also says right after that, removal may follow in pregnancy loss. So if you get pregnant with the IUD in place, there is the risk of having an abortion whether you decide to have the IUD removed or whether you decide to keep it in. Uh, there's also uh, uh, not a lot of clarity on exactly if, it, if the IUD does not uh, function as in some sense it was intended to, to prevent pregnancy, there's still uh, a lot of uh, uh, confusion and not, uh, it's not very clear in regards to what it does after that. Um, one person writes, um, that uh, when considering an, um, oh, that it, that it uh, is thought, or at least it was thought uh, more in the past, that the IUD acted as a foreign body causing an inflammatory response in the lining of the uterus that made the implantation of a fertilized ovum impossible. Well, before concluding uh, this section on birth control, I want to briefly look at uh, some issues to, uh, for you concerning or to consider uh, regarding the method of the pill. Uh, the pill is a very popular, is very popular for several reasons. It is easy to use, it is highly effective, and it is very convenient. Yet as good as those practical reasons may be, the Christian's primary concern must be with how it actually works. Uh, for as we have seen, this determines what God thinks of it. In essence, the pill prevents pregnancy by fooling the woman's body into thinking she is pregnant. The most common type of birth control pill is the combined oral contraceptive, which consists of both estrogen and progestin. Uh, together, these hormones work to do two things to prevent pregnancy. Number one, it prevents ovulation, that is, the releasing of the woman's egg. This would eliminate the possibility that an egg is available to be fertilized. Number two, it thickens the cervical mucus, thereby inhibiting the ability of the sperm to travel through the fallopian tubes. As a result of these two primary mechanisms of action, the pill is said to be 99% effective in preventing fertilization. It is in these apparently rare circumstances, excuse me, I'm sorry, I missed something. Um, but once in a while, uh, ovulation does actually occur in women who take the pill, meaning that occasionally an egg can become fertilized. And so there are people who are able to get pregnant even when taking the pill. Um, it is in these apparently rare circumstances that ethical questions arise regarding the pill. Specifically, 
does the pill inhibit the implantation of a fertilized egg in the uterus? And it may do this by thinning the uterine lining and thereby creating what is called a hostile endometrium. If it does, then the third mechanism of action would be potentially abortifacient in that it might prevent an otherwise viable fertilized egg from implanting in the womb, resulting in its rejection by the mother's body, hence an aborted child. Well, I would suggest that if you currently use the pill, that you carefully go back and, and um, to the pill fact sheet um, that should be provided with uh, every monthly pack of pills and you would read it carefully. On the pill fact sheet for a microgestin, which is a common birth control pill, it has the following description of what it is. This is taken right from the pill fact sheet. It says, it contains a combination of female hormones that prevent ovulation. That is the release of an egg from the ovary. The medication also causes changes in your cervical mucus and uterine lining, making it harder for sperm to reach the uterus and harder for a fertilized egg to attach to the uterus. Note the three ways in which it claims to work. Number one, it prevents ovulation. That's acceptable. Number two, it thickens the mucus. That's acceptable. Number three, harder, it makes it harder for a fertilized egg to attach to the uterus. That's an abortifacient aspect. Harder to attach means it may prevent implantation of a fertilized egg, and that's unacceptable. With further, without further elaborating on the details, uh, it was packed just to get this into our one hour. Uh, without elaborating on the details, uh, it is important for you to be aware that there's actually much debate that surrounds the alleged third mechanism. Namely, whether or not the pill does in fact inhibit or prevent implantation through the creation of a hostile endometrium. Arguments, sometime more emotional than scientific, have been raised on both sides of the issue. For you to develop a personally informed position on this matter, you should reference research on both sides of the debate. I'll give you some information if you're interested in that. Randy Alcorn is a leading Christian advocate. Many of you have heard of Randy Alcorn. Um, he's a leading Christian advocate for the view that the pill can cause abortions. He, also, uh, he has a website called www.epm.org. EPM stands for Eternal Perspective Ministries. He has other things that he has on his website besides uh, pro-life issues. Well, I would suggest, though, if you... Uh, are seriously considering uh, uh, issues with the pill that you would include his website in part of your research. Well, the chapter in our Sunday School book holds a different view on this debate. So I would also suggest that if you're serious about the pill, if you currently uh, take that as part of your uh, method of birth control, uh, that you would revisit the issue and research it more thoroughly before uh, continuing with it. Um, here, the chapter, uh, I would say, to get also the book, our, um, uh, the chapter in our Sunday School book also, as I said, holds a different view. So I would suggest that um, you get the Sunday School book and read the chapter. The bulk of the chapter is actually spent discussing the pill. 
so there is much to this issue that I have not told you. Um, I, I didn't want to just limit our Sunday school morning this morning to talking about the. Uh, it talked about a lot of medical issues, and I really thought that there was a need for a biblical, a, a more larger context and perspective than just what the book gave. But there's a lot more information about the pill in the book. So, in a summary, um, well, excuse me, matter of fact, I'm going to read uh, uh, two paragraphs from the book, um, and you'll get the perspective that they have uh, at least a little bit. It says, we recognize the fact that further research is still being done on this important issue. And we would encourage Christian married couples who are considering the use of the pill or any other form of birth control to prayerfully consider their decision, to diligently to study the issues for themselves and to talk through their concerns with the doctor. In summary, we do not see a compelling reason to give the current medical evidence, this was back in 2009, to, excuse me, given the current medical evidence, we do not see a compelling reason to categorically oppose the use of the pill. Nonetheless, we would never encourage a believer to violate his or her conscience. As noted earlier, we are deeply committed to the, to the life of the unborn and we respect other pro-life Christian leaders who may disagree with our conclusions on this matter. At the same time, we would caution well-meaning but under-informed lay people from using emotionally charged speculation to judge others or to stir up unwarranted fears. Well, as for my conclusions, uh, I may not give you the answer that you may want from me. Uh, I'm not a doctor, no matter what Mr. Fru says. Um, not go I'm not going to tell you, uh, don't take the pill. But neither am I going to say it's okay to take the pill. Uh, I also mentioned several years ago, Judy and I changed our convictions on this matter, initially spurred on by a research project. Sorry. initially spurred on by a research project that our daughter was doing in school. Um, but, but those are our convictions. And although I can share those with you offline if you ask me, nevertheless, uh, you will need to do your own research and be completely convinced that you are not violating any principles or commands in scripture to ultimately arrive at what you think, at what you both think God wants you to do. And as we conclude birth control, just uh, a brief word to husbands. Uh, you must be especially aware of your responsibility before the Lord to selflessly serve and cherish your wife. You should never, sorry, uh, you should never uh, coerce your wife into using any type of contraceptive method with which she is not entirely comfortable. Emotional, hormonal, and physical side effects, as well as not violating either one's conscience, should all be considered as you and your wife together determine what type of contraceptive method, if any, is right for you as a couple. And if you have difficulty in finding a method of birth control that is acceptable, and doesn't interfere with pleasure as, and serves both convenience and conscience, 
then I will encourage you that there is hope. Um, if you wait long enough, you'll find that in God's perfect timing and design, he will bless you with his very own ordained method of birth control. And you older folks know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, uh, we only have a few minutes left, but I know some of you may have come here specifically for in vitro fertilization. If you give me an extra five minutes, I'll try to finish what I've uh, written here. Whereas birth control methods may be utilized when married couples are trying to prevent pregnancy from occurring, uh, our next two subjects, in vitro fertilization and surrogacy, have to do with married couples who desire to have children, but uh, have not been successful. So this topic briefly summarizes some of the moral issues that Christians should consider if contemplating seeking the help of either of these advanced medical reproductive techniques. First, two brief definitions so you know what these procedures are. In vitro fertilization is this, a laboratory procedure in which sperm are put in a special dish with unfertilized eggs to achieve fertilization. The embryos that result can be transferred into the uterus or frozen for future use. Surrogacy is the process by which a woman uh, bears a child for another person, often for, often for pay, either through artificial insemination or by carrying until birth another woman's surgically implanted fertilized egg. Well, at this point, I'm pretty uh, much just going to read to you what the last two pages in the chapter of our Sunday School book said. Uh, uh, and, um, and you can read it yourself, but I'm, go I'm going to uh, go through it here. Uh, what follows is a list, they say, of initial conclusions that our pastoral staff or the pastoral staff at Grace Community Church has reached, reached on our conversations with evangelical doctors. It says this, all conclusions reflect the following five biblical presuppositions. I'm just going to list to you what their uh, presuppositions are. The five are, God opens and closes the womb according to his sovereign will. Number two, it is acceptable for Christians to take advantage of existing medical technology as long as the specific methods do not violate the clear teaching of Scripture. Number three, life begins at conception as defined as fertilization. Number four, abortion is not an option because it destroys human life. And number five, physical intimacy between a husband and a wife is the means God designed to produce offspring. They also have a number of verses that are listed under each of those principles. But in the interest of time, you'll have to look those up in the book yourself. Okay, laying those five uh, uh, biblical presuppositions or principles, they then say and they list 10 initial conclusions. And it's initial conclusions because it's based on the biblical principles and the understanding of the current research that they had at the time. These are the 10 initial conclusions that they say if you're thinking of in vitro fertilization or surrogacy that you should consider. Number one, all couples desiring to have children whether naturally or with medical assistance, should carefully examine their motives to ensure that the desire to have a child has not become idolatry of the heart. This kind of examination should continue to take place even after children are born. Number two, neither in vitro fertilization or surrogacy is a legitimate option for a single individual who is seeking to have a child without a biblical marriage. 
Number three, neither in vitro fertilization or surrogacy is a legitimate option for a couple who is involved in an unbiblical union, such as homosexual or lesbian relationship, or an unmarried man and women who are living together. And again, these conclusions are based on the earlier biblical principles of a family being a husband and wife. Number four, uh, every embryo created between the husband and wife, that is, every egg that has been fertilized, should be allowed to be implanted. Number five, a maximum of three eggs, preferably only two, should be fertilized since that is the greatest number the womb can reasonably sustain when more than three are implanted, the additional embryos usually face death or serious defects. Number six, if, if freezing is necessary as part of the in vitro process because of impending medical treatment such as radiation or chemotherapy, the wife's eggs and the husband's sperm should be frozen separately. Number seven, if frozen fertilized eggs do exist, they should be handled as follows. A, all of them, though not exceeding three at a time, should be implanted in the biological mother. And B, they should never be discarded or destroyed. And why should they never be discarded or destroyed? Because they're alive. We believe that uh, uh, life begins at fertilization that's their life. Number eight, scripture does not specifically address in vitro fertilization and surrogacy per se. However, as stated at the outset, physical intimacy between a husband and a wife is the means God designed to produce offspring. For this reason, we believe that Christians should not use methods that employ donated eggs or sperm from, third, from a third party nor should they use methods that utilize a third-party carrier of a baby resulting from the implantation of the husband's sperm and the wife's egg, such as surrogacy. Though it is not exactly a parallel case, the disastrous ramifications of Abraham and Sarah's attempt to use Hagar as a third party in order to continue Abraham's family line in Genesis 16, particularly the tension that resulted between the two women, may serve as a warning for those intending to pursue methods involving a third party. And then number nine, the increasing legal and custody issues surrounding surrogacy provide an additional warning to those considering a method such as surrogacy. And then 10, along with the various medical options, Christian couples should seriously consider adoption which is both viable and God-honoring. And James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Well, for those who are seriously considering this procedure, then I highly encourage you to see me uh, I will send you a YouTube link of, uh, of a visiting professor at the Master's Seminary who taught a course on Christian ethics. Uh, if you want, because basically what I read to you was, was exactly what's in, in the book. That's about all that's there. But uh, if, you, if you would like more information, um, I'll send you a link, again, to uh, 
um, uh, a visiting professor to Master Seminary who taught a, Christ, who taught a course on Christian ethics. Uh, all of his lectures are on YouTube, and one of them is on in vitro fertilization. And I would say it's a must-see if you are remotely considering this procedure. Well, uh, we're already uh, after the close of our Sunday school time. And uh, if you have any questions, uh, I want to be available for you to see me uh, afterwards, uh, either today or another time, uh, because uh, I may have certainly raised some questions in some of your minds. Uh, and uh, uh, you can please feel free to see me if you would like. Thank you for coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, uh, thank you, Lord, uh, uh, for being our God. Thank you, Lord, for, um, for the word of God, uh, for we would be tossed to and fro by every uh, wind of teaching and things that take place uh, in this world if it was not for the truth of the scripture. And so I, I pray that you, please, Lord, would use the uh, issues uh, and the explanation that uh, maybe uh, many of our brethren have heard even for the first time, and that you would uh, use the word of God and the principles of it we've discussed and Lord, that I pray that uh, uh, married couples, uh, considering any of these things, and there may be many, that uh, they would approach this in a manner that's humble, and that's honoring to you, honoring to each other, and that, uh, uh, and that. Uh, Lord, will bring about uh, living in a very practical day-to-day -day way uh, that honors our Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, uh, help them even to make what may be some hard decisions. And so, Lord, I pray that by the Spirit of God, you would encourage them together uh, in these things. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.